Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Kadir Ustin. Uh, I'm the executive director here at SETA Foundation at Washington, D.C. Uh, we, we have convened this uh, webinar today on the conflict in the Caucasus uh, to discuss the geopolitical implications, the conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia. And this is uh, this conflict had been a um, frozen conflict for a long time, for decades. But in recent years, there have been tensions. And uh, just a couple months ago, a major conflict uh, restarted, hot conflict. And we have two very, very qualified uh, experts. It's hard to find experts on this topic. So we are very appreciative of their time for uh, and their willingness to join us. Um, we have uh, Thomas DeWall. Uh, he's a senior fellow with Carnegie Europe. And then we have Luke Coffey. He's the director of Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. And um, just as uh, we were discussing uh, prior to starting the session, uh, there, there are ongoing developments. Um, the most recent news from the ground is the fall of this uh, region called Shusha. It's a strategically important uh, location. Um, and, for, and Azerbaijani's forces are, are, have been marching forward in recent weeks and this would be significant. So, um, as I will confess my lack of expertise in this region and in this topic, and I will definitely defer to my uh, analysts and I will ask them questions. Uh, and if they find it uh, too simple, they'll, they'll not hesitate to tell me, uh, but we wanna focus on what this conflict means strategically, uh, where it could end, where it could lead to, and what it means for the region. Uh, there are several important players in the region. And then you, there's also uh, Western interests, NATO, US leadership. Uh, it has implications for those as well. So we'll try to get to all these topics. Um, without further ado, I wanna start with uh, Tom uh, to give us uh, his take on today's developments, yesterday's developments on, in Shusha and what it means for the conflict, and then we'll move on to other topics. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Tom, the floor is yours, thank you. Thank you very much, Kadir, for the invitation and glad to be with you. As you say, it's a very uh, fateful day, I think, in the conflict. News is emerging, um, not yet fully confirmed, but I think mostly confirmed of the fall of the city of Shusha, uh, which Armenians call Shushi, in the middle of Karabakh, and I can't overstate the importance of this place. Uh, it's the hilltop citadel right in the middle of Karabakh. Uh, it overlooks the main Armenian city, Stepanakert. It was the former uh, Azerbaijani majority town, a place of huge significance in particular for Azerbaijanis. It's cultural significance, a place, uh, birthplace of musicians and poets. Um, so when, when President Aliyev first announced yesterday that Shusha had been taken. There was jubilation in, in, in the streets of Baku um, and across Azerbaijan. This is an enormous development. Uh, today, coincidentally, is Azerbaijani Flag Day. I think the Azerbaijanis were pushing uh, to take Shusha today on and to raise the flag there uh, today. So I think, uh, if, if confirmed, a hugely important development, a big Azerbaijani victory, uh, but um, also in its way quite a, uh, a ominous move for, for the Armenians um, now that we have Azerbaijani forces in the heart of Karabakh, um, a possible humanitarian disaster for the remaining thousands of Armenians inside Karabakh. Um, it's both kind of important and also I think much messier now the conflict. Um, hopefully we will see maybe now that um, President Aliyev has achieved this enormous uh, objective, a halt in the fighting, because I, I believe it, if it goes on, it gets increasingly messy. Uh, there could be desperate measures taken by Armenians um, there. And uh, as I say, thousands of civilians cut off, winter approaching. So I think 
Well, that's the first thing to say here. Um, obviously, we'll talk about the the diplomacy, um, but I think that that with this news, if this news is confirmed, we're certainly not going back to the status quo ante. We're, we're entering a whole new phase of this conflict in which Azerbaijan has scored a victory, but also has taken on enormous new responsibilities in this conflict. Uh, Thomas, let me ask you, you said we are not going back to the status quo. Can you talk about the status quo? What was the status quo actually? Well, I mean, when we talk about this incredibly complicated uh, dispute, which goes back a century, really, um, one of the world's most disputed regions, we understand what an intractable conflict this is. Uh, and it's it's always been a very maximalist conflict in which um, uh, third parties have have never really had a say unless they were the third part imperial party who was imposing order. This is a, a region which has um, both enormous importance both for Armenians historically and also for Azerbaijanis. And so um, of course no democracy in the Soviet Union so it was never settled by dialogue. It could only really be settled the dispute by maximalist uh, positions and in the 90s that maximalist position uh, played out in favor of the Armenian side uh, who won the war comprehensively of the 1990s taking not just Karabakh itself but seven surrounding Azerbaijani regions which which were not under dispute so this and then so this um, this was the the frozen conflict as it were quote unquote because of course it was never completely frozen with the Armenians controlling all this territory uh, but uh, disputed of course by Azerbaijan disputed under international law um, and we never, unfortunately, in, saw what I wanted, which was a, a serious and comprehensive peace process between the sides. So the risk was always that it would be settled, not uh, as was desirable at the negotiation table, but on, on the battlefield. And this is what we've seen since the end of September with this um, very successful Azerbaijani offensive, successful, of course, in military terms, but hugely costly in human terms. Uh, we're still we're getting figures from the Armenian side of casualties, uh, around 1,300 uh, military dead in six weeks, um, and maybe 50, 70 civilian casualties. We have civilian casualties on the Azerbaijani side of about 90 plus, and we don't have the military casualties, which I, I suspect are higher on the army on the Azerbaijani side. So um, certainly, it's it's frozen, unfrozen in a, in a, in a most uh, dramatic way. Uh, and if you look at the geography of this conflict and you and I have two militaries engaged with one another, it's going to be an enormous diplomatic and political effort to disengage those armies and, and to kind of provide protection for the civilians who, who remain. Um, Luke, um, I want to ask you a couple of things about what Thomas said, but before that, what is your take about uh, Shusha's fall and uh, how do you see how do you see conflict evolving? Well, firstly, uh, I want to thank you, Cater, for inviting me back here to speak, and thanks, Seta, for organizing this uh, uh, timely discussion today. I agree with uh, with what Tom said about the war has entered a new phase. Um, I think uh, Shusha was always the, at least in the in the first phase of the conflict, the main uh, objective of Azerbaijan. Uh, the fact that it was um, it has been uh, liberated means that certain considerations will have to be taken by Baku on the way going forward. Um, of course, winter is approaching. Uh, the vast majority of civilians that have uh, decided to remain behind are in Stepanakert, which is a mere 10 to 15 kilometers away from Shusha. Um, it's unclear precisely how many civilians have decided to stay behind, but we know it is a significant amount. And uh, right now, I think the, the main focus, at least on the uh, Azerbaijani side, should be to find a way to consolidate their military gains while keeping a, uh, keeping a humanitarian corridor open through Lachin back into Armenia. Um, the more civilians that are able to get out and the, the 
the better and safer the passage for these civilians to get out of the conflict zone, um, the better. And one thing Azerbaijan, I think, needs to be really focused on and start planning for now is the humanitarian consequences of the approaching winter. I saw, you know, one, one never knows how accurate the, the weather forecasts are, but I checked on my phone for Shusha, and the first snow I saw is predicted for this, this, uh, this coming weekend. Uh, so we, we are entering a phase in the conflict where I think a lot of the um, kinetic, the, uh, the, uh, the, the hardcore fighting between the two sides will slowly start to die out just because of the realities on the ground. Um, but the, the risk to um, the civilians becomes uh, even greater. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, so this is a new phase in this conflict and Azerbaijan's um, president uh, Aliyev had an, an interview. I think Thomas, uh, you tweeted that out as well. And he, he seems to be intent on uh, liberating all the uh, regions that are under Armenian occupation around Karabakh. And he wants some sort of commitment from the Armenian side um, and that would be his condition to stop. Um, so where do you think, Luke, um, if, he, if they have this momentum, yes, it might you know, kind of slow down uh, militarily because of um, sort of uh, the winter approaching. Uh, are there serious considerations for them to try to stop? Like when you called for consolidating those military wins, what why is that like uh, what would what is the incentive to stop now or slow down now well i don't i don't if there's no meaningful overture of um of diplomacy from armenia's side i don't think that azerbaijan uh, will slow down uh purposely but i do think uh because of the, if you look at the way the thrusts have been made in this conflict, and if you look at the terrain and the geography, and then you look at the concentration of the civilian population that remains, um, and then you look at the weather forecasts, um, I think the, uh, these other considerations might slow it down, but I don't think it's going to stop it. Mm -hmm. I think the sooner that the, the leadership in Yevron realizes that um, the situation on the ground in Nagorno-Karabakh and the seven surrounding districts has fundamentally changed. And it's essentially at this point a lost cause, um, the better. Uh, a lot of young, young men uh, mm. and women from both sides are dying every single day. Um, and the only outcome that can prevent this needless loss of life will be a, uh, some sort of negotiated settlement. And right now, um, I would say that Azerbaijan's playing with a stronger hand. Uh, in the uh, interview um, that you mentioned, Cater, it was a BBC interview. I think that's the one we're all talking about here. That's and um, President Aliyev said that uh, if, if, if Armenia commits to a timetable of withdrawal, um, then that could stop the fighting. So it's not even, according to what he has said, and I can only take it at, at face value because it came from him in the interview, but it's not even, um, the, this does, Azerbaijan doesn't even want to see all the troops leave before they stop fighting. They just want a timetable and to see a process implemented. And because the facts have changed on the ground and the, and the, the tactical situation is so different from before, um, I don't see any other choice for Armenia and the Armenian-backed uh, officials in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh than to achieve some sort of negotiated settlement. That would be the best thing for all the young men fighting on the front lines and for the civilians that are caught in the middle. Yeah. Thomas, uh, how do you see that um... Uh, the fact well, that uh, Azerbaijan has the upper hand. And, well, uh, I, I certainly, thank you. I mean, I certainly agree that Azerbaijan has the upper hand. Um, and I certainly agree that negotiations are absolutely essential. And I think that the Armenian leadership in Yerevan has played this extremely badly um, by not calling for more openly for negotiations sooner. Um, 
but I think, I mean, the, the, the problem is, of course, this is a very toxic conflict. Um, civilians are, have been hit on both sides, uh, but um, there's zero trust between, between the sides. And of course, uh, the fear all along amongst the Kar Armenians of Karabakh is that they would be destroyed by Azerbaijan. This may not be, this may sound strange to some people watching, but this is the, the kind of the reality that they've lived with and they, they would they would mention what happened to them in 1991 or 1992 when when the Azerbaijani side almost overwhelmed them um, so this has always I think been a zero-sum conflict and obviously we all want to see a kind of um, an equitable solution but you know it's it's much easier said than done um, and of course personally I also want to see um, withdrawal from those from those occupied territories as well but the, but hand in hand, one would one would want to see some kind of security mechanisms to protect those uh, Armenians of Karabakh, and and this has always been a difficult issue. Who would protect them? Um, again, we can start to speculate, and I'm sure we, we will discuss this about some kind of peacekeeping force. Rumors of a even of a Russian-Turkish mixed peacekeeping force, which would be quite controversial. But I think this 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 is the issue: is that there is zero trust amongst the Karabakh. Uh, I mean, the Karabakh for what Azerbaijan's intentions are for them. So to withdraw, particularly for those two territories, Lachin and Kelbajar, which connect Karabakh and Armenia, means to sort of to withdraw your connection with Armenia. This is where the problem lies. Maybe they have no alternative. Maybe, maybe they're simply their backs are against the wall. But I think this is how they see it. Um, so I'm, to be honest, not surprised that they that they haven't yet agreed uh, to this timetable for withdrawal. Mm -hmm. There was um, in these six principles by the Minsk group, uh, the recent fighting, recent gains by Azerbaijan, does that make it at least partially meaningless, those principles? Can you explain that a bit? Yeah, yeah. I'm, thanks for mentioning that, that, Kadir. Yes, I think it does. I mean, the six principles date back to 2006, 2007. They were a kind of they were they were a kind of balanced uh, set of principles, a framework for for resolving the conflict. But obviously, they were to, they were designed uh, at a situation when the conflict was uh, in the in favor of the Armenians, the the, the status quo on the ground. Um, and then I think it was um, um, Mr. Pashinyan's strategic mistake in the last year or so to start walking away from those principles, uh, believing I think that. Uh, the situation was was in the Armenians' favour, which was one one of them, the triggers for, for this conflict. And now, in, in in this, what we've seen in the last six weeks is the Azerbaijani side, if not not so much in word, but indeed also saying that they don't want uh, to honour those principles. In the BBC interview, in the longer transcript, which I would encourage you to read, uh, Mr. Aliyev is equivocal when asked about what kind of autonomy the Karabakh Armenians would get. That was one of the principles. Uh, talking about withdrawal from Lachin, that's one of the principles. It's supposed to be a corridor between Armenia uh, and, and Karabakh. So both sides have really walked away from those uh, that framework. And the new framework is, as it were, being set on the battlefield. Um, and uh, hopefully, we, we, uh, diplomacy has really been very weak so far in the last six weeks. Hopefully, we're going to see some stronger uh, diplomacy now to kind of try and deal with this new, these new realities. Luke uh, Thomas mentioned uh, that the the most recent kind of uh, it was reported in the um, in media in Middle East Eye that there was this plan that Turks and Russians would uh, kind of act as peacekeeping uh, forces on the ground and then uh, there would be uh, connections between Nachevan to uh, Azerbaijan and. Armenia would remain connected to Karabakh, if I didn't misunderstand that part. But uh, Luke, how do you see that plan being realistically implemented, uh, given that, like Thomas said, the Minsk Group's six principles have largely been uh, sort of a past story? Yeah, I read that report as well. I On the corridor issue, um, I think it's uh, sort of like a right of access or a right of transit that would go through Armenia to Nakhchivan and then transit uh, 
um, Lachen to uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, it wouldn't be um, like a like a swap or or, or anything like that. Um, I think that's probably important to stress. Although um, th this this was reported uh, in the Middle East, I I haven't seen any other um, like reports coming from state media out of uh, Moscow. I perhaps I missed them, but I haven't seen that. And I'm not sure where this is going. If this was um, you know, a, a trial balloon, someone floated up to see how people would react. Uh, but I do believe with this fundamental um, idea that only Ankara and Moscow right now have the authority and the influence and the clout over Yevron and Baku to force the sides into some sort of meaningful and enduring uh, peace arrangement. Yes, um, you know, the, the Minsk group is, uh, is still exists. Um, Turkey, of course, not being a co-chair, but part of the Minsk group has a has a role. But uh, if, if this conflict has taught us anything, it's that the, the Minsk group has um, ultimately been a failure. Um, and perhaps it's time to think of new, uh, more flexible, uh, contemporary and creative um, frameworks to deal with uh, finding a negotiated, negotiated settlements. But in terms of um, the, the basic principles and um, the confidence building, the, the whole point of the basic principles originally was to build confidence, a phased approach to the end of the conflict where um, five of the seven surrounding districts would, uh, uh, Armenian and Armenian backed forces would leave uh, and then a corridor between Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh would be established and protected. And then uh, the two other districts um, would see a withdrawal and be returned back to Azerbaijani control. And then IDPs would return back to their homes. And you had all these steps of confidence building until you got to the, the top of the top of the mountain, which was the final settlement of Nagorno-Karabakh. And I think that the negotiators at the time wisely left that kind of separate in a way. I mean, it was never separate in the minds of the negotiators, but at least publicly uh, in what was said, it was treated separately. Um, but now, uh, you know, depending on um, which uh, internet sleuth that uses Google Earth to geolocate every single video and picture taken of the conflict, depending on which maps you look at, Azerbaijan um, pretty much controls four out of the five of the first districts that um, were meant to be the first part of the confidence building of the basic principles. So the situation has completely changed. Uh, but what hasn't changed is I think this willingness by um, Baku to see a, a, a phased um, resolution to this. And I think that's um, quite something when you look at the military success they have had, uh, that they're still talking about a willingness to see like a phased um, uh, outcome, a, 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 a timetable for withdrawal, not an actual withdrawal, leaving the questions of autonomy or, or whatnot to um, of Nagorno-Karabakh to, to another date. So we'll have to see where it goes. I, I'm not sure, um, but going back to your, your original question, that specific report you mentioned, I, I, I haven't seen anything else other than what was reported by the Middle East Eye. Well, part of the reason I brought that up uh, is, is, you know, there's also a question about this. So Russia's approach has been interesting in the most recent round of conflict um, since the fall. Um, many at least outside observers uh, expected perhaps that Russia would simply intervene and stop both sides and go back to the status quo, but we haven't seen that happening. And, and on the contrary, Putin said, well, these are Azerbaijani lands. Uh, so um, what, is the, what is Russia's position? One of the questions is, Russia, will Russia press Azerbaijan to stop? Uh, but of course, we have to rewind a bit. Why hasn't you know Russia intervened in a way to stop Azerbaijan from advancing further? Uh, how do you see Russia's position, Luke? I think Russia is in a difficult position, um, and I think this is one of the factors. Uh, this was one of the factors when Baku decided to take the military option that they did. 
they see a Moscow that is preoccupied and struggling in other places around the world. Syria is becoming an increasingly complicated issue for Russia and how long they want to maintain the, maintain its, Russia wants to maintain its support and for Bashar al-Assad. Russia has um, had some setbacks in Libya. Uh, the war in uh, Eastern Ukraine is not letting up um, and uh, the occupation of Crimea is costing the state coffers billions of dollars every single year. Uh, it seems like in Belarus, uh, you have a population that uh, across the board is very sympathetic, if not pro-Russian, but yet Moscow, for whatever reason, and there are reasons, but they've decided to back a, a loser um, at, the, at the, the risk of losing the goodwill that Russia enjoys throughout most of the population of Belarus. Um, you had the, uh, uh, you, you've had Kazakhstan and uh, um, uh, Kyrgyzstan and the Turkic Council uh, make statements supporting Azerbaijan's um, uh, territorial integrity in this conflict, which is counter to um, at least the spirit of the CSTO arrangement in terms of backing a uh, another member, at least politically or diplom or or rhetorically backing another member of the CSTO. So I think that, and then you have the domestic issues, the uh, the, the civil unrest in some parts of Russia the international uh, outcry from the poisoning of Navalny, uh, the drop in the price of oil, the surge in COVID cases. Russia is busy. Russia is very preoccupied right now. And the last thing Russia probably wants is uh, this problem in the South Caucasus. So that is at least how I see Russia's position is they don't want to get too involved if they can avoid it. They don't need another major problem on their hands. And as a result, they're using these technicalities, uh, some valid ones in my opinion, but nevertheless technicalities about the CSTO agreement about, well, this isn't happening inside Ar Armenia proper. Um, and uh, I think Armenians uh, I I must feel very exposed out on a limb uh, because of this. Uh, and I don't think it's going to impact, uh, at least in the short term, Russian-Armenian relations, but in the long term, this could have a detrimental impact. And it could also impact how Russia is perceived by uh, other countries uh, in, in the region as well. But one thing I do, uh, I often like to stress is that this, this notion, this idea that NATO, because of Turkey's membership and, and the CSTO because of, of Russia, uh, that NATO and Russia are about ready to enter a conflict because uh, of all these uh, other powers involved in the fighting in Nagorno-Karabakh is absolutely ridiculous. And we should remember that for both NATO's Article 5 and, and the CSTO, um, I think it's Article 4, I, I, I could be wrong, in terms of the mutual security clause, um, it's not an automatic trigger. You know, ultimately, whenever a security alliance, an intergovernmental security alliance like NATO decides to um, uh, implement a sec the security clause, it's a political decision, ultimately. There's no trigger, there's no tripwire, there's no, you know, so I think in terms of the, the threat of the U.S. and Russia going to war, ultimately, because of some fighting in Nagorno-Karabakh, I think that's very far-fetched, and, and we should all refrain from saying uh, such things. But I still read it all the time. So. <laughs> of course. Thank you, Luke, for that answer. Thomas, the same question. Uh, what has been sure. Russia's role and how do you see them? Why haven't they intervened? And yeah. Would, well, I, they yeah. I mean, I think Russia has always uh, wanted an equilibrium in this conflict and, and has had one uh, for, for, well, if you count the Soviet Union, the, the Soviet leadership for, for 30 years and has, has, has been able to use that equilibrium to maintain more or less okay relations with with Azerbaijan while and its traditional relationship with Armenia at the same time and and that has been Russia's kind of influence in, in this conflict um, that influence has now been upset by this Azerbaijani military offensive with the support of Turkey which is the big new factor here um, and I think I, I would agree with Luke Russia has a lot on its plate and also does not want to go to war with Azerbaijan. I mean, and the, the implication, Russia, remember, has a, has a border with Azerbaijan. It does not have a border with Armenia. That border runs with the North Caucasus, with Dagestan. Uh, it could be 
that could be seriously destabilizing for North Caucasus if Russia was to intervene on the Armenian side. What I think Russia's agenda here has been for the last few years has to be to have a settlement which involves Russian peacekeepers. This is the so-called Lavrov plan. It was to have a peaceful settlement which opened up communications of Russia to the south and also involved got Russian boots back on the ground. They haven't been there since the early 90s. I think that was the Russia agenda. And we're still seeing this agenda amazingly being pursued. Uh, apparently in the talks in Moscow on October the 10th, it was, it was again raised by the Russian side. And now we're seeing it um, coming um, with these conversations with the Turks as well. Some kind of idea of some kind of mixed peacekeeping force, perhaps Russians on the Armenian side, uh, Turks on the Azerbaijani side. You know, it's not the worst plan in the world if you want to stop uh, ethnic cleansing and stop uh, and protect civilians. Uh, but there are many, many problems with it. You, you know, you're getting two big power neighbors with their own agendas in on the ground, uh, dictating a peace um, over the heads of Armenians and Azerbaijani civilians. So it's not something I personally would favor. I would personally much favor a return to a stronger multilateral process. I would like to see the US, which has been very much engaged uh, get back in. I would like to see more European nations involved. But I think the Russians have played quite a skillful game with Turkey, perhaps, of, of, of kind of blocking those Western partners out. And I think this is where, um, and I think they're winning that game. I don't think, I don't see uh, Western uh, nations uh, having much traction. Um, if we're going to see a Biden administration, obviously they won't be up and running for, for two or three months. So, so certainly that seems to be um, the way things are going. Um, and let me just, just if you'll forgive me, a, a moment of history. The last time Turkey had its troops in the Caucasus was exactly one century ago. They basically left in November 1920. They stopped fighting anyway when the Russian Bolsheviks came over the mountains into Armenia and stopped the Turkish advance into Armenia. This was Karabakir's uh, Kemalist army for the Turkish citizens who, who, are, who are watching. They've been out of this. Um, but then, and then you had the Treaty of Kars, which was basically a kind of deal between Lenin and Ataturk uh, on setting the new borders uh, of, of, of the Caucasus. Um, and again, the agenda there was, was, was to do it between Russia and Turkey and to kind of keep the Western powers out. So I'm seeing, we're seeing a bit of history repeating itself. Um, and, you know, for those of us who, you know, care about Armenia, Azerbaijan and Georgia and would like to see a more European process there, a more Western agenda there. This is not something that I personally would welcome this kind of uh, salt, if, if you're again, using history, even further back history, the Sultan and the Tsar deciding what happens in the Caucasus. For me, this is maybe it's, it's what we're going to see, but it's a step backwards as far as I'm concerned. Thank you for that, Thomas. Uh, it was interesting in the same uh, interview with uh, Aliyev, he talked about uh, the he, he opposed uh, interna internationalization of the conflict, but at the same time, he reserved sort of the right to call on Turkey if there is any need for help. Um, so but he didn't see that happening anytime soon. So that was interesting. One of the questions is about uh, Turkey's role. Um, so uh, let me read that to you and ask you, Luke. Uh, well, actually question is to both of you. So if you're willing to answer that, that's fine. Why do you think, uh, what do you think about the calculation in Ankara for such a high degree of degree of involvement in the Nagara com Sorry, Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. Uh, Turkey seems stretched in Li Libya, Eastern Mediterranean, Syria, and uh, a very challenging economic situation at home. Um, so how do you see Turkey's role uh, so far? And there are obviously energy interests, strategic uh, landscape, but also at home, there's a high level of uh, support for you know basically we consider you know it's the famous uh, motto one nation two states um so uh turkey at home there's a public opinion strongly on the side of azerbaijan as well so i'll i'll go to luke for this and then thomas if you want to add anything please luke 
Yeah, of course. Um, the, the of course, Turkey, like Russia, has a lot going on <laughs> around the world, and and often they uh, have a lot going on together <laughs> in, in these different places. Um, you know, even Ukraine, uh, when the when President Erdogan and and President Zelensky met um, uh, recently uh, and signed new arms deals, and the, it was very effective TB2 drones and a whole package of support. And of course, Turkey has been one of the most outspoken um, uh, supporters or uh, of the Crimean Tatars who. You know, face um, religious persecution and cultural persecution in occupied Crimea. So we, Syria, Libya, Ukraine, um, the South Caucasus, uh, of course, uh, you've always, uh, you, what we're seeing, I think, is just a continuation of history. Uh, you know, for the past couple of years, certainly in Washington, there was this narrative that um, this is a bromance between President Erdogan and President Putin is a fundamental shift in, in the in the geopolitics of, of the region. And and I would you know, I only think this would be the case uh, if you also agree that we are going to undo about 300 years of history where Russia and Turkey have been natural competitors, um, often in conflict in these regions, especially the South Caucasus. Um, as Thomas mentioned, you know, 100 years ago this month was when the last time the, the, you know, the Turks were present on the, in terms of boots on the ground in uh, Azerbaijan. Uh, but Turkey is always, because of that cultural and that linguistic and that historical um, uh, connection with Azerbaijan, has always had Azerbaijan's back, so to speak. I think uh, in the part of the question about um, does this... Um, burden Turkey to the point where it can't, you know, focus on other regions or its other challenges in the Eastern Med or Syria or whatever. I would say no, because I think that uh, Turkey's support of Azerbaijan is baked in to their policy formulation and their population. Uh, it doesn't matter, uh, you know, across the board politically, for the most part, um, uh, AK, CHP, uh, it doesn't matter. They're supporting uh, uh, Turkey support for Azerbaijan. And actually, Turkish support for Azerbaijan in this conflict comes at a relatively low cost. Um, you know, they, they, they sold weapons, uh, um, you know, they actually got money in return, as opposed to gifting weapons to Azerbaijan. Uh, they get to see, um, you know, the Turkish defense industry uh, is benefiting from this because uh, nothing sells a piece of military kit like a combat proven tag you can put on it. And if we know anything, it's that these drones are very effective uh, from the hours of footage that has been released. So I think Turkey sees what is happening um, uh, positively. And I think that perhaps one of looking back in, in the future, when we look back on this conflict and the origins of, of this most recent round of fighting, it will be a complete um, failure of uh, Armenian intelligence, or at least Armenian uh, statescraft to recognize the not only enthusiasm, but the level of support that Turkey was willing to give to Azerbaijan, in contrast to that lukewarm support, standoffish support that Russia gave to Armenia, uh, certainly in the earlier days of this fighting. Thank you, Thomas. Sure, yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm not a big Turkey ex expert. I used to spend a lot of time in Turkey, but uh, the Turkish foreign policy I'm familiar with is out of date, which which was political support for Azerbaijan, but 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 pursuing a peaceful uh, settlement of, of of the conflict. I mean, I would say um, I'd make a slightly different point, which is that uh, there may be I'm not I'm looking for the right word, maybe a slightly Mephistophelian pact here that, that, that Azerbaijan has made with Erdogan's Turkey. I would remind you, obviously, the two nations are very close. Uh, they speak virtually the same language, the strong Turkic bond. Uh, but the leaderships have fairly different agendas or uh, in, in many different places. Um, it's a, still a very secular leadership in Azerbaijan and, and, and still quite a, si a Shiite country. Uh, so uh, President Erdogan is bringing something different. Uh, here. He's bringing the Middle East into this conflict. Um, we haven't discussed these Syrian fighters, uh, but, um, and I try not to touch this issue, but, but I recently read that the, the, 
the report by Syrians for Truth and Justice, I believe the NGO is called a 50 page report with lots of interviews, flight data, videos, um, very, very detailed information about, about these Syrians who I, I think there's no doubt that they are there in Azerbaijan. Um, these reports from Syria itself are very, very detailed. So that's also bringing a new element in, in, into Azerbaijan. Um, and of course, President Aliyev is riding high now in Azerbaijan with the whole public. He can do no wrong. But in the longer term, this influence may be uh, running contrary to, to his own vision of, of what he wants to do in Azerbaijan, this more Sunni Islamist uh, Erdogan vision. So I think um, President Aliyev is, is riding high at the moment, but in a, in a couple of years time, uh, he may have mobilized the public in a way that he's not so comfortable with, and he may have imported this, this kind of Turkish, Turkish agenda into Azerbaijan in a way he's not so comfortable with either. Luke, do you have anything to add to that? Okay. Um, there was a question about this uh, Syria thing, so you've discussed that Thomas I think um, I want to move to other questions there are several questions um, we are witnessing heightened efforts from the Armenian diaspora for international recognition of Artsakh because of these diasporic pressures there are more calls from large western powers for Azerbaijani forces to cease fighting and a US city uh, Glendale admittedly with a high Armenian population as officially recognized Artsakh, will Western pressure and diasporic influence have any legitimate impact on the conflict? Luke, uh, this is US domestic politics. Uh, I don't know how much you want to dwell on it, but briefly, perhaps. Yeah, I, I, I um, understand the emotional drive behind some of these views and this activism. Um, uh, I completely get it, uh, but recognizing uh, a, a, a new country, Artsakh, um, is not going to change the facts on the ground. And Glendale or you know whatever municipality in the United States can pass whatever resolution they want, and it doesn't change um, the situation. And you know some. Uh, I understand how you know the Armenian Americans who have you know have that close connection to Armenia and they perhaps have traveled back there and you know of course they're concerned uh, you know if the, seeing what's on social media seeing the international news what is happening uh, it's only normal for them to be concerned about uh, their um, ancestral homeland but. Uh, Sometimes I feel like the diaspora groups, um, you know, they, they profit, they make money, fundraise and development uh, by, by throwing fuel on that fire. And I think that in terms of the national debate we have in the United States on what role the U.S. as a, as a, as a nation should take in this conflict, I think maybe sometimes that can be slightly skewed. And we see this on Capitol Hill, um, where you have a very influential very influential Armenian uh, American lobbyist groups who um, they, they benefit from throwing fuel on this fire. Uh, so I I, um, I think we we all have to be um, understanding and look. I, I myself have been the target of a lot of uh, you know harassment and um, social media attacks and everything. Uh, and I, I understand where this is, this is coming from, um, how these Armenian Americans must feel. And, uh, and uh, I try to be compassionate about that. But we, these organizations, these diaspora organizations have a responsibility too, not to just, um, you know, make a very volatile situation worse. Can I come yeah. in on that just quickly? Yeah. I mean, I, as someone who's, who knows this Armenian question quite well, I mean, I, I, I've also observed several conflicts and I, I, I think it's true to say that the closer you are to the fighting, the more you want the fighting to stop. And, and often people thousands of miles away are the ones who are urging it on. But the people who are fighting on the ground, whether they be Azerbaijanis or Armenians, are the ones who really want it to stop. And, and I think it doesn't no favors this some of this rhetoric coming from across the ocean or from far away. I mean, I think, you know, I think the diaspora can play a, a positive political role by 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 advocating 
um, you know, helping Armenia to negotiate, advocating uh, the position of the Karabakh Armenians on, in the humanitarian situation, you know, their political rights, uh, calling out um, violations of international humanitarian law and so on. I think that's that, that should be their role rather than calling for this mm -hmm. recognition of Artsakh. Um, and I, I mean, I think I would also say to any Azerbaijanis who, who are watching, you know, this obviously what happens now, Armenians are not going to give up on, on, on Karabakh. It has an enormous importance for them as a place. So if Azerbaijan can play this, can de-escalate a bit from, from the from what they've been doing in recent weeks um, and offer even some glimpse of hope for the, the Armenians of Karabakh, then that would actually benefit Azerbaijan as well as the Armenians. Uh, Thomas, uh... What, how are things looking from Europe? One of the questions is about that. Uh, Minsk group uh, proved unsuccessful. Is there a need for a new platform? And if there is, what would be Euro European Union's role in that? Sure, well, I mean, I think the OS, when the Minsk group was founded in 1992 and then was given its proper mandate in 1994, there were great hopes on the OSCE as this new European security organization, which would take on a leading role in Europe would be a kind of European United Nations would have some kind of security role. That hasn't happened, unfortunately. And I think the, the, the weakness of the Minsk group is also located within that bigger problem of the OSCE. Um, and so you've got European nations um, which want to do more. I'm particularly thinking of Sweden, Finland, Germany, which are in the Minsk group, but are not Minsk group co-chairs, but have been, as it were, denied a more active role, and I think that's a shame. Um, so I think it would be possible, still possible, not to abolish the Minsk group, but as it were, to give more uh, influence and and a voice to the ordinary members of the Minsk group, which also include Turkey, uh, of course, not just the co-chair countries. Uh, that that would be my wish, uh, with American support for a return to come some kind of multilateral format. But you know, as we've already discussed here, I think things are moving in a different direction. I think with the big regional powers seem to be trying to dictating the game. Um, so I don't see that happening. But um, personally, I will continue advocating for that. I have some hopes in Sweden as the new OSC chairman in office um, can can try and do something on, on this conflict um, and try and sort of mitigate some of the, some of the worst things happening. As I said, we are receiving a lot of questions, but let me just ask you, do you think this could be resolved militarily in, in the end? Like Azerbaijan just doesn't stop and this goes, they get to liberate all seven regions and then, you know, then... Well, theor yeah, theoretically, yes, uh, Kadir. I mean, all problems can be resolved militarily, um, but then the, I would remind you that the Armenians thought they had resolved this in 1994. This was the the... the the message I heard so many times in Armenia, you know, why are you still talking about this? This issue is resolved. It's only all that remains for Azerbaijan to accept the new realities. And when I would say things in Yerevan like this, this conflict is unsustainable or no, the occupation of, of those lands is unsustainable. They would say um, seems pretty sustainable mm -hmm. to us. Um, so obviously, um, if Azerbaijan does take over these territories at a great human cost, um, it would have it would say well this is the de jure territory of azerbaijan um but there are so many disputes around the world um you know we can name them all cyprus kashmir kosovo um you know all, so many disputes where one side has as it were lost but is not giving up and I'm, that would definitely be the case given armenians enormous attachment to karabakh the historic meaning the cultural meaning you go there and see all those medieval churches, you understand um, the meaning of this place for, for Armenians. So yes, there could theoretically be a military victory, but I don't think I, I would say for sure that's not the end of, of, of the conflict. Yeah, regardless of the trajectory of the military offensive, at some point there will need to be a settlement, diplomatic political settlement. And what format that happens will be important, uh, like you said. Um, I th there's a bunch of questions. I want to kind of combine them, Luke. Uh, so can you review the range of military support to Azerbaijan from Turkey and Israel? Um, um, 
Thomas spoke about Turkey's return to the region after 100 years. How many Turkish troops are there in present in Azerbaijan now? What roles are they playing? As far as I know, there are no Turkish troops in Azerbaijan. Aliyev also- Trainers, I think, rather than troops, yeah. What's that? I was going to say trainers and advisors more than more than troops on the ground. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then another question is about again Israel's support for Azerbaijan, but Turkey and Israel don't get along. How does this work? And somebody is asking about Iran's role because because they're asking about Israel. I wanted to, it's always it's related to Iran question. Uh, what is Iran's likely future role in attempts at conflict resolution and how about how has their position changed since the 90s? How likely is it that conflict might spill over into the Azeri population in Iran's northwestern territories? So I just kind of see them all connected. That's why I'm dumping them all on you, Luke. But uh, I'll turn to Thomas as well. Um, yeah. Please. Well, I, we can have a whole other um, panel discussion, I think, <laughs> to answer those questions. Uh, in a nutshell, I, I, well, I'm often asked about this. Well, you know, Israel seems supportive of Azerbaijan, but Turkey and Israel don't get along. And then what about Turkey and Russia? I thought they're supposed to be friends, but look at what they're doing against each other in the South Caucasus. And um, I say, welcome to the South Caucasus. Uh, you know, it's a very complicated region um, that uh, it's not black or white. Uh, there are many shades of gray. And you have to look at maybe some of the, you know, reasons why driving some of these relationships. I mean, take uh, Israel and Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan provides Israel with about 40% of its crude oil every single year. Um, the, there's the, a very large Jewish population in Azerbaijan uh, that is important to, uh, to Israel. Netanyahu uh, has visited, spent a number of days in Azerbaijan. Um, so they have this sort of strategic partnership. And also, I think, um, to, to throw Iran into this, uh, while on the surface, uh, Azerbaijani and Iranian relations are very cordial and, and, and somewhat smooth, below the surface, there is a lot of tension there. Um, some of this is based on um, uh, the consequences of uh, historical agreements between Imperial Russia and the Persian Empire. Uh, where you have a large number of ethnic Azeris that live in northern Iran. Um, you have a, uh, a, as a consequence of international sanctions against Iran uh, uh, over its nuclear program, you had Iran looking all over the place for um, countries to do some business with, and, and uh, Armenia was one of them. So Armenia and Iran have had a very cozy recent years. And I think uh, Israel sees that and they see that friction that's below the surface between Azerbaijan and Iran. So then they see Azerbaijan as sort of a, a natural partner in, in that sense. But in terms of uh, Iran, um, Iran's role in the current fighting, um, while in the past, uh, Iran has certainly been sympathetic to the Armenian cause, I think they're being more cautious this time around. And for some of the same reasons why I mentioned uh, about Russia's hesitancy, and that is because they too have a lot on their plate um, right now uh, with, with everything in, in the Gulf, across the Middle East, and, and Syria, and Lebanon, um, Iraq, uh, the, you know, the uh, economic sanctions, the U.S. withdrawal from JCPOA. So I, and on top of all of this, if you think about it from Iran's point of view, along their border with, with Azerbaijan and Armenia, there is now a completely new geopolitical landscape um, that is unfolding before their eyes. And they're trying to figure out what this means, I think, for, for, for their interests in the region as well. And, you know, you've seen on, on social media um, videos uh, and reports of, um, Russian resupplies going through Iran into uh, Armenia. You've seen um, the mobilization of Iranian forces moving north uh, along um, the Aras River. And I think it's not because Iran is going to get military involved in this conflict. As, as I said, I think they're trying to figure out how things stand, what the new reality is, and how they need to respond. Um, so yes, the, the region you know, is very complicated. Um, it's not clear cut, and that's just um, you know the geopolitical reality there. 
Thank you, Luke. Um, Thomas. Well, I think, I think, you know, um, Luke's basically covered it. I mean, Iran, I think it's like Georgia, um, which hasn't been mentioned, but worth mentioning a country which neighbors the only the two countries which neighbor both Armenia and Azerbaijan. And I think they don't want to get anything out of this, particularly rather than avoid a lose-lose, which is which is which is the problem. Both countries, both Georgia and Iran, have Armenian and Azeri populations. Both, you know, risk destabilization from this conflict. So I think both are desperately, obviously, very different countries in in every other respect, but in this conflict, um, quite similar in that respect. Both desperately wanting to kind of see the conflict stabilize. Uh, and, and avoid big refugee flows and avoid um, sort of overflow of, of the conflict onto their territory. Mm -hmm. um, one more thing about uh, US foreign policy. Now we have a new administration coming in soon and uh, they have promised to, you know, do more internationally, right? Take, uh, not necessarily in every single conflict uh, subject around the world, but but on climate change, uh, NATO, JCPOA, etc. Um, Luke, let me get to you about that. How do you think if there's a more internationalist uh, US foreign policy, how could that reflect on here? And we know that, you know, incoming administration will want to show some strength uh, against Russia. Uh, could this be um, this region be uh, be a scene where we see bigger sort of U.S., Russia, NATO, Russia kind of uh, back and forth uh, show? How do you see that? I think sometimes um, we Americans need to be a little more aware of the limits of our perhaps power and influence in some places around the world. Um, and I would say the specific uh, conflict that we see today in Nagorno-Karabakh is a good example of this. Uh, the United States has a responsibility to play a productive role as one of the three co-chairs in the men's group. But this idea that, you know, whether it's under a Trump administration or a Biden administration, that we have some sort of special influence that we're just not using to bring these parties to, uh, to the negotiating table, I think is, is um, fanciful. So I, I hope that um, the U.S. you know will play a constructive role inside the framework of the Minsk Group, but it may not be that framework that brings a negotiated settlement uh, about. Um, so the U.S. I think needs to be flexible uh, and but also be realistic about what it can and cannot practically achieve on the ground in the region. Would you would you advocate for it to sort of? line up next to Turkey in this conflict? Like, how would it really? No, I think it's in America's interest that there is some sort of a negotiated settlement um, that can bring in an enduring peace to this part of the South Caucasus. There are very important oil and gas uh, pipelines, fiber optic cables, uh, rail links, uh, motorway that connect um, uh, the, the heart of the Eurasian landmass to uh, Southern Europe, which provides an alternative to Russian and uh, Iranian oil and gas to Europe. Europe's energy security is very important to the United States uh, because of our treaty obligations through NATO and our economic connections we have with Europe. I mean, uh, we're each other's number one trading partners. We're each responsible for the creation of millions of jobs for each other on both sides of the Atlantic. So the US has an interest in, to ensure that we have a prosperous and stable Europe and energy security is a key part of that. Uh, so anything that the US can do to help bring peace that can um, create a, a sort of a pathway to prosperity for the whole region um, I mean, just think how many billions of dollars of foreign direct investment must be missed out on in the South Caucasus because of conflicts like this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Armenia has missed out on a lot of regional cooperation uh, over the years because of this conflict. And if this conflict can be resolved in, in, a, in, an, in an enduring, meaningful way, then I think, you know, there could be huge economic opportunities to improve the standard of living and welfare of, of all th the three countries in, in the region, Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Armenia. I think they all can be winners here. Um, but I don't think that, so it's in the US interest to see this realized, but I don't think the US right now has the 
the uh, the power to do so. Yeah. Thank you, Luke. Of course, since we are focused on U.S.-Turkey relations at Seta Washington, I was trying to find an area of potential cooperation between U.S. and Turkey. But uh, uh, Thomas, I'll give you the last word. How do you see U.S. potential role um, uh, in this conflict, in the resolution of this conflict? Well, the U.S. has, tradi has traditionally played quite an active role as a, as a mediator in this conflict, but has been very much disengaged under this administration with one exception, one initiative by John Bolton, I think in 2018. I, I, I see them trying to, to, under a Biden administration, trying to, there are, there are people who've um, um, worked on this conflict who are likely to take jobs in the Biden administration. But I, I, I see them trying to, you know, reassert a role, but I, but I, but I think the landscape will be quite difficult, uh, quite different, um, different and difficult by the time a new administration takes office. I, I certainly think the US has, could play a stabilizing role, but I think the main action is now taking place without the US. Um, I would also mention that, that Georgia is currently in a political crisis um, and maybe the US has some more influence there. And, and hopefully, at least in, in, in the, when it comes to Georgia, I think the US can, can be a calming influence. Thank you, Thomas, and thank you, Luke. This has been an excellent discussion. Uh, we're really lucky to have listened to two top experts in this region in, in the South Caucasus. Uh, we hope uh, some sort of diplomatic solution uh, uh, that's lasting will come soon uh, so that further you know, uh, conflict could be pre prevented. Uh, but uh, again, thank you all for joining us to listen to this discussion. Thank you, Thomas, and thank you, Luke. Hopefully, you. we'll, we'll uh, discuss these issues again in the future. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you.